Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. You're on Bite Into It. Tonight on the show, it's Ro Murray. Ro, in the studio, punching the buttons for us. Thanks for joining. Good evening, everyone. So good to have you. And um, from remote, from our living rooms, we've got Lily Ryan. Hi, how's everyone doing? Good. I'm really enjoying the view of the Greyhound lounging behind you. (laughs) (laughs) It's extremely entertaining. And um, you've also got myself, Laura Summers, also from the living room, but no lounging pets, I'm afraid. Um, So this evening on Byte, it's all machine learning all the time. First up, whether for good or bad, the COVID pandemic has been a proving ground to many new technologies. For instance, the proliferation of location check-ins and mRNA vaccines are prime examples. Many thought we'd also see the promise of machine learning technologies come to fruition. We've got Dr. Jarl Sia on the show tonight to discuss recent news showing the disappointing, in some cases, downright unhelpful outcomes of hundreds of ML models created for clinical application for COVID. And after that, we're going to have a chat with Ennis Montani, the internet famous co-founder of Explosion AI, who's working on building tools in the burgeoning and very popular field of natural language processing. But before we get to those very cool chats, we've got a bit of news to talk to. Lily, I've been following this story on Apple scanning people's phones to look for child sexual abuse imagery. I think there might have been some changes or some updates on that um, happening this week. Do you want to maybe give us the rundown? Yeah, sure. So um, Apple's come under some heat recently because it's uh, announced that it's going to introduce new technology that will be able to identify child abuse material on iPhones by matching image fingerprints with known abuse material in a database that's held by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the U.S., um, but this this represents a really big change for Apple in the way that it handles user data because they have traditionally as a company put a really big focus on privacy. And so there's been a lot of backlash from digital rights activists and many others. Um, I think there was a recent open letter that was signed by over 5,000 organizations and individuals around the world. So people are pretty unhappy about it. And as a result, um, Apple has made some changes to their process um, but the critics are still concerned that while this use case is appropriate, the technology could be used for other but for other purposes by um, governments around the world. Yeah, I heard someone describe it as a custom-built spying mechanism, which is, you know, I mean, obviously looking for child sexual abuse images is of a very like noble and appropriate use case, but then you have this whole mechanism which allows you to scan people's phones and match for images. And who knows when that's gonna be the face of someone you don't like or, you know, a journalist that you're trying to find. Yeah, it's um, um it's definitely something concerning. Mm. Um, Ro, do you have any thoughts on Apple sort of doing this 180 because they've always been the the privacy first, you know, we'll look after your phone and your device and your data um, company. And that's, in fact, a, a value proposition they're trying to made, make a distinction from many of the other companies. Mm. 
Yeah, look, I think the this entire thing just poses so many challenges from a really practical standpoint. Like today, um, it hit the news that with the Taliban, um, you know, successfully taking Kabul and everything that is going on in Afghanistan, a whole heap of biometric data has been seized. And uh, that's not just... Um, you know, it's it's not just people like, for example, in the military or high officials. It is often interpreters, workers, all sorts of people have been co- coerced into essentially having this data on file and it's now been seized by um, a highly aggressive invader. And I guess it's just talking to that really big picture that any time that kind of recognition, any time that kind of data is collected, it can be misused. And, you know, I think we always need to be hyper-conscious of what that might look like. Mm, your technology you thought you would use for good can be, in fact, used for evil as well. Very quickly and very easily, yes. Mm. And, and it's funny because this has really, um, honestly, tragic echoes of things we saw back in World War II and, you know, like IBM Watson being asked to make lists of um, Jewish people to then be exterminated. I, I feel like there's some genuinely terrifying outcomes that we just haven't learned the lessons, the technological maturity lessons that we should have learned by now. Um, but anyway, on to more cheerful technology news. <laughs> yes, <we do>. um, <laughs> I think there's a, there is some. There is some. There is you know, some. <laughs> not always, but every now and then. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, huge swaths of Australia is um, currently on lockdown, which is really, really challenging for, um, you know, all of the people affected. But um, this piece of tech news really did prick my ears up today. It cheered me up a little bit and gave me hope for the future that we'll actually be able to do a bit of travel. But... Uh, Western Australia has announced a new electric highway. So essentially what they're doing is they're, they've, and I absolutely love that they're just going for it, they're, um, it's going to be Australia's longest electric highway, which is basically a huge win for Aussie EV drivers that are looking to, you know, <coughs> eventually travel around Australia. Um, so basically the, the stats are there's going to be 90 fast charging stations at 45 different spots um, and with an average distance between those charging stations of around 160 kilometres. And considering most EV vehicles, EV vehicles, EVs now, um, have substantially, you know, broader, um, you know, capabilities that's that's really exciting and um, the uh, charging devices that they've selected are offering a 15 minute per car charge time to get it right back up and going so it's actually really really viable and it's really really exciting Um, the distances are massive so it's basically going to start at the bottom and go to the top (laughs) with a little bit of a curve towards the coastal towns and it's also going to hoof off to Kalgoorlie from the Perth area so um Highway is expected to be fully functional by early 2024. With a bit of luck, we'll be able to travel by then. Oh, gosh. Hopefully before then, even. Oh, <laughs> you absolutely. never know. Yeah, that is exciting. Look, I'm I'm really stoked to see any states really, like, taking the charge in terms of building infrastructure for EVs. And um, that I, I think that's an area of the, the country that sort of maybe could benefit from some, like, incentives for tourism or some incentives for, like, kind of doing a big route and, you know, like the the grey nomads, um, et cetera. Yeah, Lily, you want to add to that? Oh, just looking at the map because they did publish a map of, of where the route goes. And to be honest, it looks amazing. I have never felt a more compelling reason to visit Western Australia than to travel it by electric vehicle, like, all the way up that coast. It looks incredible. 
Maybe that can be the route one for Australia, like the, the WA coastline. It. Oh, I yeah, love that I'd be idea. into that. <laughs> Absolutely love that idea. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Can I do a nerd joke? It'll be route zero. Please do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I literally just made Lily like cringe. I saw it on her face. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll all right go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you'll, you'll give it this time that's good I approve. Um, <laughs> talking about more Aussie innovation um, there's an Australian startup that has come up with a new way to do COVID testing which might be a little bit less unpleasant than those sort of invasive nasal swabs that we've all had to use um, so this medical tech group called Inventive Health has formed an agreement with the Israeli startup Virusite Diagnostic to bring their Spectralit rapid testing kits to Australia. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, and yes, they are like a mouthwash. So you do a little bit of a swish swash and then spit out and they test that liquid rather than having to do the nasal swab. Um, and that certainly seems a bit more appealing to me than sort of someone sticking a long stick up your nose. Um, have either of you had to have this COVID test? Oh, yeah. yeah. I've had the test a few <laughs> times. Yeah. I'm uh, really looking forward to something that's an alternative to having my brain swizzle. <laughs> you know, every time I do it, I think about the Egyptians, like, doing the thing where they, like, scramble your brains and pull them out for mummification. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do the same thing. It's it's really not a pleasant image. <laughs> oh, man, nerds think alike. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, just, it feels like it's touching the back of your brain. And I'm so here for, you know, Australia is actually pretty behind what a lot of the rest of the world's experiencing with, you know, rapid testing and different methods. I saw people on TikTok basically spitting into a bag on the way to a party and having their negative tests by the time they arrived. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about that is that um, those tests, some of those rapid tests are made in Australia, but they're not approved for the Australian market. It's so that we're making some of them here and then exporting them, but we don't actually use them ourselves. No. That's surprising and seems uh, illogical. It does. I was talking to a friend in the US about it the other day. She was surprised we didn't have it. She said, isn't this an Australian company? And I said, uh, yes, apparently it is. But no, we, we don't have it here. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, yeah. we may um, have, yeah, we may have some, you know, approvals, um, you know, processes, TGA approvals processes that as a, as a country, ideally, we might want to, you know, speed up a little bit or make more agile mm. um, in, in, <laughs> in these trying times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, certainly as evidence changes and as like sort of medical advice changes, we want to be able to respond rapidly and we don't want to be taking months or years even to, you know, respond in our policy. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Triple R. Jarrell Sia is a medical AI consultant at Harrison AI, and he's also a practicing medical doctor at Alfred Health. We've invited Jarrell onto the show to help us make sense of this recently published work from MIT Technology Review, which is finding that the global attempts to leverage machine learning models to improve COVID diagnostics and clinical applications were mostly unsuccessful. 
But before we hop into that, Gerald waved his hand at us and said that he knew why this rapid testing <laughs> spit test um, wasn't approved for use in Australia. So, hey, Gerald, you want to tell us about that first? Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me on the show, obviously, Laura and Ro and Lily. Um, I, I think just you know, as a preamble to what I was going to say about the, the COVID-19 tests, you know, it's actually really relevant to some of the reasons why you know, machine learning is actually done not very well in, in this setting. Um, and it boils down to, with, at least with the COVID-19 test, there are two types of tests. There's uh, the real-time PCR test, which is you know, DNA amplification, and then you've got the antigen tests, which are sort of the rapid tests. And I think the one that you've linked me, the Alum test, you know, which is produced in Australia, is just a type of antigen test. Um, and sometimes we call them lateral flow tests in other areas. Um, lateral flow tests are less accurate, um, but it's not so much accuracy isn't just a single number. And we'll come back to this later. And then when we talk about this, you know, it is obviously false positives and false negatives. And the problem with you know a lot of antigen tests is that there's a high false positive rate. Um, so you know, when when they say you're positive, like you're obviously more likely to be positive, but it doesn't mean you're always positive. As opposed to um, you know RT-PCR, which is extremely specific, and if that is positive, there's a very low chance that you're not actually positive. Um, and that means that in different situations, right, where different prevalences of COVID um, exist, you know, the, the risk-benefit ratio of using each test changes. Like, for instance, in Australia, even though it looks like COVID is you know, running rampant across Sydney, you know, uh, there's 600 cases a day now, um, you know, that's a rounding error, like, in most countries, right? So, you know, mm. in, in those countries, when where it says that, you know, say, you know, in the, on the Cochrane website where they assess a whole bunch of antigen antigen tests, um, you know, rapid antigen tests are probably about 80% in terms of a positive predictive value. So that means that if 80 people, 100 people test positive, 80 of them would have COVID and then 20 of them wouldn't, right? So imagine if you were testing now hundreds of thousands of people, right? You you test, you know, 100,000 people and 20,000 of them are positive, but they're not actually positive and they have to go into, you know, it's, it's a significant repercussions, right? You now have to contact trace them. You now have to put them into isolation. And your contact tracers obviously can't afford to be spending, you know, tracing 20,000 people who don't actually have COVID, right? Mm. And that, that's the reason why, you know, we, we, you know, at least in the hospital and, and so far for our tracing efforts, um, rely on, on RT-PCR as the, the gold standard, because it's, it's so highly specific that if, if it's positives, you know, there's a very low chance that you don't actually have COVID. And that means our contact tracers can focus on the job they need to do. Um, you know, that's obviously one of the reasons that there, there are probably multiple reasons, but, you know, this is probably the, the main thing that comes to mind. Uh, you know, there are obviously other uses for antigen tests, like, you know, daily testing in patients who or people who, you know, may or may not have COVID or, you know, prior to entering large events. But those are, are different things, right? Because, you know, if you test positive for a, a antigen test before going to, say, the MTG game, then what you might have is, you know, maybe you don't go to the MTG game, you just go home and get tested. Versus using the antigen test, you know, as a, as a means of identifying and contact tracing. And that has, has huge different repercussions. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, certainly you would imagine that different, different maybe like fidelity tools might be used for different things. Like the mm -hmm. antigen test might be good for indicating you should go get the other test as Absolutely. opposed to, yeah. to go kick off that there mm -hmm. needs to be like the full contract tracing. And yes, as you say, that's, that's um, very uh, human resources intensive, very time intensive and very costly as a result. Um, and 
perhaps unsurprisingly uh, closely linked to another um, technical failing of COVID, which is that we failed to automate contact tracing the way we thought we would. Um, but that's a whole other show. So <laughs> let's, let's put that to the side. <laughs> for another evening, um, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For another evening. Um, but yeah, let's let's circle back to this article because I think it's um it's it's really it really piqued my interest and I think it's maybe easy for this sort of news to kind of go un unregistered um especially with all of the stuff the news and the the crises that are happening like one after another in the world at the moment but um I thought this was a really interesting uh sort of outcome that we're seeing like these hundreds of machine learning models that we're trying to look at um radiology scans and look at other um look at other aspects of uh, clinical progression of the disease. And um, so few of them were rated as fit for clinical use. Um, in fact, I think I saw something in the article saying that um, the test that they had done only flagged two, um, two models as worthy of further trial, which, you know, again, seems um, kind of disappointingly low. So yeah, the, this question of why have so many people attempted to build models and, um, you know, and sorry, to be clear, we're talking about a mix of different model types. So some of them are trying to do diagnosis. Some of them are trying to identify which patients are likely to rapidly decline. Some of them are trying to work out how to triage patients. So, you know, like there's a lot of, um, this isn't only one type of model that was examined in um, this, this sort of set of research pieces that were being summarized in the piece. But I'm yeah, like I'm, I'm really interested in why, why we didn't see like higher success rates, um, and why these weren't sort of deemed fit for clinical use. So, and I know Gerald, you've actually worked on exactly this kind of modeling. So I thought you were the perfect person to come talk to us about it. Yeah, no problems. Um, and yeah, thanks again for having me. You know, I think. So as, as part of my, um, as Laura has already mentioned, you know, I work with Harrison and Annalise AI, which is a radiology AI company here in Australia. And our first you know, product was a chest x-ray product. So obviously when COVID comes out, everyone asks us the question, can you identify COVID? Can you diagnose COVID? You know, can you triage COVID? Can you prognosticate COVID? Um, and, you know, we, we had a, a, you know, a real good think about this, you know, even back in 2019 when it was still sort of confined to China. Um, and, you know, we quickly realized two points, which was, um, you know, diagnosing or triaging COVID on the basis of imaging um, was never going to be a, a winning formula. It's never going to be the most attractive thing. And that's, you know, just knowing what a chest x-ray does, right? So, you know, a chest x-ray or imaging CT or chest x-ray, either one, um, you know, it, it passes x-rays through the body and it looks for basically fluid in your lungs, Right. And, and there are lots of things that can cause fluid in your lungs and it could be infection, your heart could be failing, maybe you, you swallow wrongly and the fluid went down your, your, your airway instead of your esophagus. Right. Um, and that all shows up as you know, opacities in the chest x-ray. And it's, it's very, you know, we always say that you, you're imaging the patient, but you're not putting them under a microscope. So there's no way for you to know what the actual pathology is. And so, you know, one thing that was obvious was that perhaps it could be quite sensitive. You know, again, like our like our lateral flow tests, our antigen tests, right? It could be quite sensitive in saying that perhaps this patient might have COVID, um, but it would certainly never be very specific. And it comes back to the other question, which is, you know, how prevalent COVID is, right? So you know, if you just tested everybody in Australia with a, a rapid antigen test, you know, 20% of them, well, a large proportion of them would be, you know, false positives, right? 
And the same applies for, for chest X-rays and CT scans and machine learning, which is fundamentally, um, you know, it's very hard for you to diagnose what COVID looks like because the, the changes of COVID on the chest X-ray have no sort of biological reason to, to look that different, if that makes sense. And so, you know, Right from the start, I think, you know, we, we had a position statement in, in our company that, you know, we wouldn't be diagnosing COVID. We would find, you know, findings that perhaps might indicate that you might have COVID, um, but we would never be able to definitively say whether you have or haven't or don't have COVID. Um, and then the next point, I suppose, is, you know, prognostication. And so we looked at that and, and we actually decided that we would we would try it. We would go ahead, we would see, um, you know, could we actually prognosticate somebody, you know, uh, and so we worked with several uh, universities as well as hospitals. There's a network of hospitals across um, Australia, um, about seven sites that, you know, through the first and second waves collected data very diligently. Um, we had overseas collaborators from the University of Michigan and Harlem Ford University um, when they were getting their huge waves. You know, we collected all the imaging, all the outcomes. And, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is um, something can be predictive of an outcome, but yet not be useful. Right, and that's because it is not just by itself. How useful is it in predicting whether or not somebody, um, you know, say for instance, needs to go to ICU or, or might pass away? Um, it's how much additional information do you get from the X-ray? So right from the outset, you know, we, you know, th there were a lot of data sets coming out from China, coming out from other places like the US. And here's an X-ray. Here's when you know, whether or not they had COVID. Right, and, and a lot of people sort of thought of that as a very simple binary problem, um, and then even and, and even the next one, which was you know, here's an X-ray, and did they pass away or did they not pass away, or did they go to ICU or did they not go to ICU? Right, but that data by itself is not sufficient to answer the question of is it clinically useful, because even if you just looked at one very important variable, um, you could already tell whether or not somebody's going to do badly, and that's age. Right, by stratifying on age alone. Right, you can probably reach an AUC of, you know, even under the curve for accuracy of, you know, more than 90 or 95% um, of just working out whether or not somebody's going to do badly because it's quite clear that age is the biggest risk factor in terms of somebody, you know, doing badly. So mm -hmm. without that information, right, to try and help, uh, you know, compare to as a baseline, right, there's no way for you to know whether or not your AI model is actually doing something above and beyond just predicting somebody's age, which is obviously quite trivial for the, the AI model to pick up. Um, so a lot of the studies you know, started out like this, and you know, they, even though it, it looks like they, they were beneficial, if you throw in the rest of the clinical information, um, it wouldn't help. Like it doesn't provide any additional benefit above and beyond that. Um, you know, that being said, uh, we, we are still collecting data across our Australian sites now. Um, you know, we had a look at the American sites, and um, it, it, you know, we, we, we found that the most predictive thing of um, whether or not somebody was going to go to ICU or pass away wasn't actually whether or not they had airspace opacities of fluid in their lungs or how much fluid they had. It was actually how calcified their arteries were, because that is actually a, a measure of heart disease, and that was one of the factors we had not included in our collection. Unfortunately, um, so oh, we thought of a lot of things. Things he wish he knew a year ago. <laughs> yeah, we collected age. We collected, you know, their, their saturations. We collected their presenting complaints. We collected whether or not they had cancer. Um, we forgot to calculate, you know, collect that. But anyway, um, that's fine. So we, you know, we're still collecting data um, in, in the Australian setting, and so hopefully we'll get a different result from that in the next few months. But um, up to now, you know, that's that's our finding. 
you know, the other problem, I suppose, that a lot of, um, I guess, non-clinical people looking into this is that they view it as a very straightforward um, classification problem or a, or a very straightforward survival analysis problem. And that sort of hides a lot of the complexity. Um, you know, whether or not something is positive for COVID is, like I said, confounded by a lot of other factors, right? Now for, and most importantly, you know, the, the geography that they are in. So a lot of patients, a lot of studies from this, you know, took uh, images from different places. So we took, you know, images from the US, took images from Australia, and then said, all right, here's a data set of x-rays. Um, do they have or do they not have COVID? Right? And you can probably predict what happens next, which is instead of working out whether or not they have COVID, the algorithm just predicts which hospital they come from. Because if you're from an Australian hospital, you probably don't have COVID. If you're from an American hospital, you probably have mm. COVID. Mm. Um, and that, that's that's a, it's a phenomenon of what we call you know shortcut learning in in, in AI um, or in the medical space specifically we call it hidden stratification, and that means that you know your AI works really well overall or looks like it works really well overall, but if you look at a particular subgroup or if you look at a particular you know a particular group of patients that are homogeneous in one way, um, it doesn't work at all. Right. So like in this case, if you just took that model that obviously just tells whether or not they're a, a US patient or Australian patient and it applied to just Australian patients, you know, it wouldn't work, right? It would just say none of them have COVID, because of course they're all from Australian hospitals. No problems. Mm. Easy. Um, well, yeah. I mean, even in the piece they say that some um some some of the data sets they were using, like you, you just described hidden stratification. I mean, they have what you might think of as not hidden stratification where the um, control groups just weren't set up correctly. Um, so for example, they were comparing diseased adult lung scans with juvenile lung scans. So Absolutely. the model would learn to find children instead of find um, healthy lungs. Um, yeah. So do you think that's a, a problem of... Um, you know, data scientists and machine learning practitioners not knowing how to collaborate with subject matter experts or like... I mean, this is, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is almost not uh, like, it's, it, I guess the failings from a lot of these aren't exactly subject matter expert level type problems. They're not really, you know, you don't have to be a, a doctor to, to learn this stuff, really. Um, in fact, the people who know this stuff the best are the epidemiologists and the people who do um, clinical studies. Right, people who run, um, you know, randomized controlled trials, or you know, there's the concept of selection bias, which hidden stratification is a part of. Right, you're selecting your patients wrongly, or, or not in a consecutive, or not in a random manner. You know, it's a, you know, it's a cardinal sin in in, in um, randomized controlled trials. Right, um, and I think what a lot of people didn't realize was that you know, detecting COVID or prognosticating COVID is essentially a retrospective cohort study. Um, and you know, a lot of data scientists that started doing this you know, probably didn't realize that epidemiological background or flavor of the problem. Um, and you know, whereas in a lot of data science, I guess in a lot of data science applications, we we try and collect as much data as possible. You know, we try and collect you know across as many sites as possible, and then you know, obviously we try and get as representative a pop sample as possible as what we'll be using in production. Um, you know, a lot of data scientists probably um, weren't aware that you know, collecting data from multiple places um, and what we call Frankensteining data sets together, you know, taking data set A plus data set B, um, even though A and B are perfectly valid cohorts in and of themselves, adding A plus B doesn't necessarily give you a valid cohort, right? So if you get a valid cohort from the US population, you get a valid cohort from the Australian population and you add them together, um, you now have a, now a new confounding factor, which is which data set they came from. 
Hmm. Um, and so this this sort of issue of perhaps um, you know like just slightly naively globbing these data sets together, or you know attempting to find ways to produce more more data because that's often the challenge when you come to you know getting better um, machine vision model outcomes is you need more data and you need to train it on more examples of you know positive and negative cases. Um, do you see that as being something we're going to get better at as we sort of um, understand the the problem to solve more? And do you think this is sort of a, a, a factor of the immaturity of the technology and, you know, our understanding of how to build really useful data sets? Or do you think that, um, you know, I mean, another thing I was wondering about when I was reading this piece was like, there are so many hundreds of people building models, but none of them seem to collaborate or there, there seem to be like a lot of um, research groups just kind of going off and doing their own thing, um, but not necessarily lots of um, kind of comparing of results or sharing. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if there's maybe like a aspect to which the competitive nature of um, you know, corporations yes, isn't helping us. Yeah, certainly. I think the the sort of publish or perish kind of model, or you know, like you don't want to get scooped, so you're gonna work on this yourself and then stick in an archive, is is, is definitely not helping. Um, one you know, one useful trend I think that's moving away from that is um the use of competitions like on Kaggle. So I think RSNA and SIIM, which is Society for Informatics and Medicine, um had a COVID nineteen challenge, which is really good because then you have the data set and the problem framed by people who you know, hopefully know what they're doing um, and have, you know, organized the data in a useful manner. And then, you know, we, we let the data scientists answer the question, right? In a way that uh, the epidemiologists, the clinical studies and the clinical trialists pose the question and then people around the world try and solve that problem. And the problem is, you know, the whole data set, essentially. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is the whole data set. I almost just want to like, oh, just the little things. let that land. <laughs> yeah. Put it on a shirt. Yeah, that's right. The problem is the data set. The problem is the data set, yeah. My name is Daryl Sia. The problem is the data set. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. look, I, we almost out of time, but um, did you want to share any any other reflections on your um, your particular like attempts at modeling or the the work you've been doing um, in your in your group, like the the challenges of data set like um, building or the the challenges of doing um, machine vision for clinical use. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the 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 challenge, the, the main thing that you know, sort of to take away is that these these algorithms, you know, deep learning algorithms, are incredibly good at cheating. Um, they, they they will use whatever information they have, um, and it's it's almost a, a a losing battle to try and and you know account for every possible thing that they might come up with. Um, you know, there's, there's a recent study by one of our collaborators, Luke Oakton Vayner in South Australia. Shout out to Luke if he's ever here. But um, you know, they, they were looking at at race, and it basically turns out that you know, X-rays you can pretty much figure out somebody's race from an X-ray. Um, which is quite surprising because humans can't really do that, but obviously the machines can. Um, so you know, if you even if you thought that race wasn't going to be a problem for working out whether or not a particular person had COVID, right? You know, if there is a bias to it, say um, for instance, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders having more COVID, then you know the algorithm will use that, right? So the challenge really is trying to make sure you collect your data in a consecutive manner that reflects the way you're going to use it in production or in, in clinical practice. And that's always going to be a challenge. Mm. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Jalasia, for chatting to us. Um, I sort of feel like I've come away with as many questions as answers, but I, that, that was um, really, really helpful. Um, and certainly I think it's it's uh, uh, important for us as technologists to remember that it's um, 
it's it's not it's not okay to make too many assumptions, particularly when deep learning models like to cheat, as you say. So we'll try and we'll try and remember to keep an eye out for all the ways that they like to cheat in future. <laughs> so next up, we're chatting to Ines Montani. She's one of the founders at Explosion AI, a company responsible for a very very popular suite of tools for natural language processing. Um, as we were listening to that song, we were hearing from Gerald saying that he also knows these tools, so that's funny, small world. Um, that includes Spacey, which is an open source library for industrial strength natural language processing in Python, and Prodigy, a text annotation tool powered by active learning. So welcome, Ines. Yeah, hi. It's really great to be here. <laughs> so great to I chat love, to you. I love radio. It's so like um, old school. It, and I don't know, <laughs> play songs in between. It, it, I don't know. It made me really excited. <laughs> I know. It's kind of got a charm to it that... Um, podcasting. I mean, look, I love podcasts as well, but it's, it's certainly got a sort of, you know, it's got its own vibe. It's quite fun. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun sitting in the producer seat because while we're using, you know, really current technology while we're on lockdown and overseas and, you know, chatting, we're still using these brilliant old consoles, which will, you know, <laughs> live past the heat death of the universe. They are indestructible. They are still going and they look like something NASA used to get onto the moon. So... <laughs> Bless a slider, bless a haptic button, Love it. bless their cotton socks. So good. Um, so, Ines, I mean, look, I have so many questions for you, but I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we should start with just um, you giving us a little bit about your journey into NLP. Like, how did you find yourself in this problem space and or what excited you about it? And, you know, like, how how did you get started? Yeah, so I would say I have a pretty um, unusual tech background. So I didn't I didn't go to uni for computer science or anything. Um, I was always interested in language, and I kind of started programming when I was maybe eleven, and discovered that Microsoft Word could export websites, and I found it super exciting. Like, wow, I can upload something to the internet. Um, so that's really how I got into writing code because at some point you want to make your own custom websites. And I've been kind of programming ever since, but um, when I had to decide what I wanted to do with my life, basically, <laughs> um, I didn't choose to do computer science. Um, I did communication and media science and linguistics. And so that's kind of, um, yeah, that got me a lot more into linguistics and thinking about language. But um, I still, I ended up working in media for a while. Um, and it wasn't really until I met my current co-founder, Matt, um, that I really became interested um, to work in NLP. And I really found like an area that, can, where, I don't know, where I was able to combine all the different things I was interested in from programming, language, um, usability, developer experience, visualization, um, just doing, making something that's useful. Um, and that's pretty much how I got started. And um, yeah, I pretty much joined Spacey when it was um, super young or, um, barely just released and I've been kind of going from there and in 2016 we founded Explosion which is our company because we saw there's like a lot of demand for better tools um, and better libraries and things to make developers more productive and ship better software basically. Yeah absolutely and can I just add to that better tooling from companies that aren't FANG which is always <laughs> yeah. a little bit of a poison chalice right like you always have to worry about what you're giving away when you use tools from those really big companies. Um, 
I mean, look, I love that. I love a winding journey into tech, right? I love people who bring their own subject matter expertise. And um, I think there's so few people working on, on NLP who actually have deep understanding of language or linguistics. Like that doesn't always seem to be the case. So, um, and, and perhaps that's showing up in some of these ways, these models can be biased and that's not getting picked up until it sort of starts going wild and, and we start seeing some sort of um, horrific outputs like, um, people of color being called gorillas in Google Photos, you know, stuff like that, where you think, oh, maybe if someone had had a little bit of sensible, um, you know, arts background, yeah. had a bit yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely all for like reasoning. You know, you always need to reason about what you're doing. And if you are working with language, that becomes a lot easier if you have some idea of how language works, because, yeah, it's how, it, how it's what we use to communicate. The way I phrase a sentence is how I get my message across and then you understand what I'm saying. And if you want a computer to do something remotely similar, you have to understand how language works, basically. Or if the computer does something weird, you have to understand why could it do that and how can I fix it? Mm. Um, look, I've, I've been learning a bit more about how text annotation works, but I'm wondering if maybe you can explain it a little bit for our audience, because I think perhaps um, the bit in NLP that might be unfamiliar to many people is that you know, the, the machines are not just sort of interpreting words in the abstract. They're sort of looking ahead a couple of words or they're trying to understand phrases and like how they how they work contextually. So I thought maybe you can give us a little bit of, um, you know, a kind of summary of what what state of the art for text annotation looks like right now. Yeah. So actually, it, it's funny you mentioned like, oh, computers sort of trying to um, <laughs> have some roles to understand language, because this is actually something I was pretty disappointed by when I got into NLP. I had this idea of like, oh, you're just sort of writing grammar rules for the computer. But it's like, no, even back then it was all statistical. And, um, you know, the basic, the fundamental idea is, well, if we have a lot of examples of whatever we want to predict based on a text, for example, a category that applies to a given text, is this spam? Is this email about billing? Is this email about um, something completely different? And we show the computer enough of these examples and the correct answer, let, them, let the algorithm guess and then reward it and punish it. Um, based on whether it gets correctly, it can build up these statistical representations. That's like the, you know, the really basic um, idea of that. And of course, there are lots of different ways we can make this um, even better. Um, but it always means that, well, whatever you're trying to train um, and whatever you want the computer to do, you do need at least some examples of the correct answers. Even if you're using something completely unsupervised where you basically just give the algorithm a bunch of text and let it kind of come up with its own labels and its own little buckets that it wants to sort things into, you still need to figure out a way or have a way to actually check whether what it's doing is good. And the only way you can do that is by having some examples of what you want the model produce at runtime and the correct answers. And that's usually something you need to create. And ideally, you know, you need to look at at least some of that to make sure it's correct, because otherwise you end up with systems that could potentially even be harmful if you're not evaluating them properly. And um, Prodigy is one such tool that basically lets you create labeled data for machine learning models. Um, it's definitely, we focus a lot on text because that's what we know best, but it also has some features for audio images um, and stuff like that, um, or just any, any content really, anything you can render in a browser. So we've been talking a lot about language, um, 
but I was kind of wondering how much of this is the English language? How much are we talking about English here and how much are we talking about languages other than English? Is the ecosystem as good for other languages? I mean, this this is a good question. And basically, the reality is that a lot of the ideas and things we adapt in industry do come from research. And a lot of research has been very focused on English because English is just, um, you know, it's the world language. Um, it may not even have the most speakers, <laughs> native speakers in the world, but like it is the language that everything is done in. So there's kind of this general rule of thumb in NLP, which is that the closer you know your language works <laughs> to like, or the more similar your language is to English, the better a lot of the um, techniques um, and ideas will probably work. Um, but that said, it's not true that like, oh, it's just, you know, everything only works for English. There's been a lot of work um, in um, other languages, um, including even some languages with um, very yeah, low resource languages, um, languages that don't actually have that many speakers. Um, but, um, you know, you can train a lot of these algorithms um, with all kinds of language. But again, it's, it's important to actually understand what the data is and how that language works, because not everything <laughs> you can apply to English works the same way in other languages. And if, you know, you only speak English, it's easy to forget that, like, oh, English is actually quite simple in a lot of ways. Like, you know, you um, even mm. if you, you know, you go over to, like, German, which is my first language, and there you have um, nouns that are gendered and you have grammatical genders. You have to learn what gender, grammatical gender, the table is. <laughs> Oh, exactly. And on a main con context is obviously, um, you know, everything when it's all trying to make sense of it. Um, what are some of your thoughts on um, the best type of approaches, um, perhaps like transfer learning, try to bridge those gaps? Um, you mean gaps for, um, you know, English from versus... From English versus other, other languages, um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, transfer learning, which you mentioned, is definitely um, a nice idea. So the idea here is that we can basically transfer knowledge um, that we can generate based on a lot of unstructured, from a lot of um, unstructured text and use that to kind of give our model a head start. So I often explain this as like, well, imagine, you know, you're hiring a new employee of course, you don't expect them to know everything. You want to train them. You want to teach them what to do. But you're not going to raise them from birth. You expect them to know the language you're speaking and you expect them to have some idea about the language and the world. And that's kind of the similar idea. So there is a lot of just general knowledge about language and the world that we can um, extract from raw text and then bootstrap a model with. And that, that does um, work reasonably well. But there's still, you know, if you take it a few steps further, there's usually... Yeah, NLP doesn't stop at just um, analyzing some grammar or like extracting some words. There's always a problem you want to solve, which can be quite a complex business problem. It can be, hey, we want to extract these types of concepts. We want to put them in our database. And then we want to compute something that really only matters for our specific use case. And that's usually something you need to develop in a custom way. And that often does depend a lot on like how that specific language works, how the domain works um, and so on. Um, I'm really gutted to have to say that we're almost out of time already, oh, no. but um, I know it, it goes so fast. This is the this is the pain of the radio format, as you have very very short interview segments. Um, but I was hoping maybe you could take us out with um, sharing an anecdote of uh, the most surprising or unexpected um, application of NLP you've seen. Oh, this is <laughs> this is a tough question. I get asked this a lot, and I never have like a great answer for it because in, in a way. The most interesting and exciting use cases are really boring. 
Um, that's what, like, you know, a lot of it is what drives uh, the most value. Like, there were some in, some relatively interesting use cases, um, definitely in, like, the sort of COVID domain, which ties in um, <laughs> with what we heard about previously. Um yeah, it's. Um, I should. I should kind of have a list of like all some of these <laughs> projects. Like pe- people, have, people have been building um, pretty cool and pretty interesting stuff. I'm not sure um, what's particularly surprising, but um, has anyone? Um, I was. I've been wondering: is anyone um, trying to listen out for uh, baby baby babbling or baby gurgles? Like, are they trying to <laughs> interpret <laughs> human babies before they're you know pre language? Oh, that's. that's that's kind of interesting but you can that, that's also an interesting annotation problem because you sort of need to um you know you need to standardize on like a uh, transcription of like baby babbles i mean it's probably more like an i don't know an audio uh task because you probably really want to work on the audio waveform rather than um the language and text itself <laughs> actually someone's trained a star trek model i thought that was pretty funny like you know, they, um, you can you can Google funny. it. <laughs> that, that was actually done by a friend of mine. Amazing. Um, you can predict aliens and space destinations. That is secretly very cool. <laughs> I, as someone who's literally about to go finish a Star Trek episode after this show, I'm so here for that. <laughs> yeah, Google Spacey Star Trek. Um, you'll find it. <laughs> That's beautiful. Amazing. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to finish there. Thank you so much, Ines Montani, for chatting to yeah, us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Enos. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Bite Into It with Lily Ryan, Laura Summers and Ro Murray. Towards the end of the evening, we do like to have a look at a bit of weird news of the week. <laughs> Lily, do you want to tell us about this um, record of calculating pi to a very high number? Yeah. Um, so some news that came out um, apparently about 13 hours ago <laughs> was that um, some researchers in Switzerland have claimed to calculate pi to 62.8 trillion digits um, using a pair of um, processes like off-the-shelf processes that you could buy, you know, just in, in any old shop. Um, that, which was pretty amazing. Uh, they beat last year's record, um, which was 50 trillion digits. So, uh, you know, um, hey, it's growing. I mean, I, I think the quantum computing crew are going to say that they're going to do even more once um, quantum computing gets up and running because um, they'll have they'll have even more uh, compute power for every bit. But um, well, this, that's it's still a lot of digits. <laughs> right? like, it did not take sure them 108 days. 108. Wow. Just, um, you know, yeah. Wild. I mean, I, I quite like um, I quite like the people who memorize pi, but that's that's a, way too many digits to fit in your head. I think <laughs> that would be a very ambitious task. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Ru, do you want to tell us about a couple of events that are coming up? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, look, you know, events in these very interesting times that we're living in. Of course, there's a lot of changes afoot. But what is actually going ahead? Uh, Linux Conf AU 2022 has officially been announced. Uh, so that's happening in January from the 14th to the 16th next year. Um, one of the things that we love, like obviously, there's so many really, really cool online conferences, and I'm absolutely stoked that this is more of a thing. Um, this one's in Australian time zones. 
<laughs> which cheers my blackened heart so much because, my God, the number of 2am get-ups or 4am get-ups to do stuff. Um, so this deeply technical conference will be covering topics from the inner workings of the Linux kernel to the inner workings of dealing with communities. Every year the conference attracts between 500 and 800 attendees, so it's definitely one of the most popular grassroots open source conferences in the Australian regions. Um, submissions for speakers and sponsors are now open. So if this is your bag, save the date. You can find more information at linux.conf.conf.au. There's also, oh, sorry, Ro, please. Oh, no. Um, and I was just going to say, for those who have been super, super fascinated about this evening's um, interviews, you can find out more coming up soon. Go, Laura. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's going to be an event from a group that we are very familiar with, the Melbourne Uni Centre for AI and Digital Ethics. They're running a demystifying artificial intelligence event on Friday the 20th, which I think is Friday week from now mm-hmm. um, of August. So if you have a quick look from Melbourne University Centre for AI and Digital Ethics, you'll be able to sign up for that online for free. Again, Australian time zones, rock on. Um, Also, a quick one that PAX Australia was cancelled, which is a sad, sad story for all of us who um, were looking forward to that in October. Um, But if you are a ticket holder already, you will be fully refunded. Um, And I think we have to wrap up. So thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Ro and Lily. It was just a blast getting to hang out with you tonight. Thank, thank you, you so much, Laura. <laughs> and thank you also to our guests this evening, Dr. Gerald Sia and Ennis Montani. Um, we've been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 